I thought it would be appropriate following Christmas and the recollection and remembrance of the birth of our Lord to take a look at a passage from his early childhood. Jesus was once a boy. A boy. You ever think about that? The one we proclaim, the one the scriptures identify as Lord, Savior, Messiah, Son of God, Servant, Messenger of the Covenant, Lamb of God, the one the Nicene Creed affirms as very God of very God. This very one was once a boy. Of the four Gospel writers, only Luke gives us an account of an incident in the boyhood of Jesus. Matthew tells us of Jesus' birth and a family sojourn in Egypt, and then moves right to his baptism as an adult. Mark skips Jesus' birth entirely and begins his account with the baptism. And John? Well, John begins with the pre-incarnate Christ, before telling us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, with the exception of Luke, our Lord's early years are largely hidden from view. Largely hidden from view. Before our text for this morning, which begins at chapter 2, verse 41, there is one brief verse concerning our Lord's childhood, his very early years. That's in Luke 2.40. And the scripture says this, And the child, which means little child, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's it. That's all we get of our Lord's very early years until the passage we just read. And the first thing to note in verses 41 to 43 is that Jesus grew up in a household that honored God, a household that honored God, that lived within the boundaries God had set. Luke has already given us some indications of the piety of Joseph and Mary. Back in chapter 1, you might remember when the angel Gabriel visited Mary and told her that she had found favor with God and would bear a son whose kingdom would never end. She responded, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I am the servant of the Lord. Servant is actually a pretty soft translation of the Greek. The actual word means and probably should be translated slave. And many New Testament scholars have pointed this out. The New Testament uses slave constantly and most often as a metaphor for total devotion to Christ or God. Total devotion. In October 1987, at the annual Global Ministries Institute held at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School near Chicago, the main speaker was Yosef Son, a Romanian pastor who had been arrested and imprisoned twice for preaching the gospel and then exiled in 1981. Prior to getting up to speak, he expressed his preference, his strong preference, to be introduced as a slave of Jesus Christ. There aren't many people, he said, who are willing to introduce me as a slave. They substitute the word servant for slave, but there is an important difference. A servant gives service to someone, but a slave belongs to someone. Behold, I am the slave of the Lord. That's how Mary thought of herself. That's how she understood herself. She self-identified as a slave of God. That's who she was. Total devotion, which is characterized by humble submission, unquestioning obedience, and a desire to please the Master. That's Mary. Mary is also a woman of faith who believed the angel Gabriel's message and was commended for it. Again, back in chapter 1, remember her relative Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, said of and to Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. 
Mary believed. Mary was a woman of faith. And Joseph? Well, he saw to it that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day and later presented to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem, all in accordance with the law of Moses. And then we're given a summary statement in chapter 2, verse 39. And when they, meaning Joseph and Mary, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Friends, Mary and Joseph were pious, observant Jews, faithful Jews. Jesus grew up in a household that honored God. And this continues in verse 41. In verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. According to the Old Testament, and you can read about this in Exodus chapters 23 and 34 and Deuteronomy 16, adult men were supposed to attend the three major feasts in Jerusalem annually, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But in light of the nation's uh, scattering, it was the custom in first century Judaism that those who lived a distance from the city only journeyed to the temple once a year. Now, as I mentioned, adult men were required to go, but the journey was not a requirement for women. But for a woman to go, well, that was a sign of great piety. So once again, Luke is underscoring the truth that Joseph and Mary were serious and faithful adherents to the traditional faith. Jesus grew up in a household that honored God. Now, the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, assuming the travelers went around Samaria, which most people think was customary at the time, that journey was about 80 miles one way, a journey that would, would have taken three to four days. And pilgrims often traveled in caravans for protection, something I think we see here. If you look at verse 44, Jesus is already behind in Jerusalem. His parents don't know it. But in 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So this wasn't Joseph and Mary and the kids in the minivan. This was a group trip. There were relatives and acquaintances. It was a group trip. Jesus was 12 years old. And look at verse 43. When the feast was ended, some pilgrims only celebrated Passover and then returned after two days. But the language used here, when the feast was ended, literally is when the days were completed, suggests that Jesus' parents stayed behind, stayed for the whole seven-day period of Passover. Again, an indication of the family's devotion to Jewish custom and the worship of God. And now Luke introduces a family problem, verses 43 to 45. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. It's quite likely that Mary and Joseph simply assumed that Jesus was among the group heading home, that he was with relatives or acquaintances. Whatever the exact situation, it doesn't appear that his parents were anxious at all. They're not worried at this point. It was only at the end of the first day of travel, when all would have come together for the night, that they realized there was a problem. Verses 46 and 47. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
By the time they find Jesus, he'd been missing for three days. You can only imagine what the parents were feeling here. Three days. That's one day out with the caravan, one day back, and one day searching for him. And they discover Jesus in the temple. In the temple, among the teachers, listening to them, asking questions, and making reply. Now, in that day, it was not unusual for students to gather at the feet of the rabbis to discuss scripture, theology, the things of God, often in a question-and-answer discussion-type format. So, not unusual. But for a 12-year-old, perhaps not typical, but not entirely beyond the realm of possibility. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Second Chronicles, we read this about King Josiah. We're told about his reign, King Josiah of Judah. And the scripture says this, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, so he might have been 15, 16 years old, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. While Josiah was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. So perhaps for a 12-year-old, perhaps not typical, but not out of the question either. Even at the tender age of 12, the boy Jesus has amazing knowledge of the things of God. In fact, those listening to him are astonished at his understanding. And note, Jesus himself is not teaching at this point. He's not teaching. He will later, but not now. Now he's simply listening to the teachers in the temple and asking and answering questions. Now, of course, Jesus is unique, utterly unique, and we'll come to that. But we should take careful note, I think, of the fact that already early in life, Jesus values the pursuit of comprehending God as he increases in wisdom and in stature. And friends, our Lord's approach to knowing God and seeking understanding pictures how we too should do the same. Jesus' approach to knowing God and seeking understanding pictures how we too should do the same. Now, we often treat Jesus as unique, unique in all things, in all ways, because he was and is the Son of God. But surely one reason, not the only reason, but one reason Jesus took on humanity was to show us how to live and walk with God. In his first letter, the Apostle John writes this. This is 1 John 2.6. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The late uh, Anglican churchman John Stott, a churchman, scholar, pastor, commenting on that verse in 1 John, said this, Christian conformity is to the example of Jesus as well as to his commands. We cannot claim to live in him unless we behave like him. After all, the goal, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.29, is to be conformed to the image of the Son. And as another commentator put it, Jesus had to become a man like us in order to live as our example and pattern in life. Jesus is our example and pattern in life. Friends, here is a 12-year-old seeking to know and understand God better. Our young people should be encouraged to do the same and all of us should be encouraged to do the same. Take time to know and understand God better.
And look at verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Where did Jesus get such understanding? Where did he get such understanding? The scripture is silent on this point. You know, it says he grew in wisdom. But Jesus, it seems to me, growing up in a home that honored God, was perhaps already aware of Joshua 1.8 and Psalm 1, both of which call on God's people to delight in the Torah of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, and to meditate on that instruction day and night. In other words, God's people are to be relentlessly attentive to what God has to say. And, you know, broad brush, right? There's a pattern in Scripture. You know, if you've read the prophets, you know, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, if you've read the prophets, you know that the prophets read and studied and meditated on the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. We know from Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel himself read and studied the prophet Jeremiah, as well as the Pentateuch. We know from the book of Ezra, chapter 7, that Ezra the scribe set his heart to study the Torah of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. And we certainly know from the New Testament that the biblical writers of the New Testament were steeped in the Old Testament. They quote from it and allude to it so extensively. Friends, the pattern is there. God's people immerse themselves in the Scriptures. And remember that when the Scriptures speak, God speaks. When the Scriptures speak, God speaks. Our Lord's approach to knowing God and seeking understanding is a pattern for us to follow. So at the moment, Jesus is a boy at the instructor's feet. But as the rest of our text will show, Jesus is already well aware that he's more than a mere student or learner of his ancestral faith. Well, let's continue. You can see in verse 48 that Joseph and Mary find Jesus. And they too are astonished, amazed to see Jesus talking with the temple teachers. But Mary, and I'm not surprised it's Mary, Mary quickly takes the lead here and gets right to the point, with a hint, I think, of scolding. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Great distress. You can only imagine, right? Your child's been missing for three days. Great distress, in fact, describes deep mental pain or trauma. And Mary, speaking for herself and Joseph, wants to know why Jesus has done such a seemingly insensitive thing. And her question prepares for a key teaching about Jesus' identity. It pinpoints the primary issue. Who is Jesus' father? In other words, to whom does he owe primary allegiance? To whom does he owe primary allegiance? Mary's question is quite direct as is the reply of her 12-year-old son. Verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now this is Jesus' first statement, his first time speaking here in Luke. And he accepts no blame here. He accepts no blame, but instead issues what I think is a gentle rebuke. A rebuke which reveals his sense of priority and the necessity of his task. I must be in my father's house. Must. It is necessary. That's how it's often translated, that word. It's the same Greek word Luke uses later in his gospel, in chapter 24. You might remember this. This is Jesus walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And you might remember what Jesus said to them. This is Luke 24, beginning at verse 25. 
He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? It's the same word. Was it not necessary? This is divine necessity. In our text, it means that Jesus stayed behind in the temple under divine compulsion. He had to be there. He was compelled to be in the temple. Now, I think Jesus is making two points here. He's at the temple. What's the temple, right? It's certainly a place of worship, yes, but it's also a place of teaching. And uniquely, it's the locus of God's presence. Place of teaching and the locus of God's presence. So I think Jesus is making two points. First, his vocation, his career, if you will, must be about instruction on the way of God. And our Lord's call, which we see as this gospel unfolds, is to instruct the nation, to teach Israel. He's only 12 years old now, but the day is coming when instructing Israel will be his top priority. So this passage looks ahead to Jesus' public ministry. And it also tells us that Jesus must align himself with God's purposes, the Father's purposes, even if this appears to compromise his relationship with Joseph and Mary. The parents here need to see that their son, Jesus, must be about the work of discussing what God desires. Jesus must align himself with his Father's purpose. And the same, friends, is true for us. That's really the uh, call of discipleship, to align ourselves with Jesus, who aligns himself absolutely with God the Father. We are to align ourselves with the Lord and with his purposes. So the temple was a place of teaching, but it was also the locus, the place of God's presence. And Jesus here is revealing something to us about sonship. It's fair to say, I think, that Jesus is operating out of his position as son. And being a son means being in the Father's presence, spending time with the Father, communing with the Father, discussing the things of God. Being a son means being in the Father's presence. In Jesus' pursuit of intimacy with the Father, it's a product of his sonship with God, but we too are sons and daughters, children of God, as John's Gospel makes clear. There's certainly a distinction between our sonship, the believer's sonship, which is by adoption, and the unique sonship of Jesus, but nonetheless, this is a picture of how all of us should prioritize our lives before God. You know, sometimes we have to make choices, we have to make decisions that others do not understand because God has called us to set priorities that differ from those who go through life without any reference to God. Time spent with the Lord in His presence. So think church, the sacraments, scripture reading and meditation, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, ministry, time spent with the Lord will simply not be understood by others with a different set of priorities. But friends, being in the Father's presence, communion with the Father, is part of what it means to be a child of God. It's foundational to our formation as disciples, and it's also our great privilege, a privilege with which the unbelieving world does not and cannot share. Being with God in his presence is also the crux of our faith. 
Remember in uh, Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned, the temptation was, you'll be like God. And they found that, that they were like God after sin. They knew good and evil. But they were, they were like him, but they were no longer with him. And that's, that's the point, is to be with the Lord. The end game, the goal, ultimately, for all of us, is to be in the Father's presence. You know, if you think about the book of Revelation, right? The Apostle John, he's looking ahead and summing everything up in Revelation 21. And John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And he hears a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The end of all things is to be in the Father's presence. The uh, King David has uh, a statement about this in Psalm 16 as he's, as he's praying and he's looking ahead. He says to the Lord, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, human happiness consists in being with God, enjoying the blessings of His presence. Being with the Lord, time spent with Him in His presence now is a foretaste of the life to come when we will be in His presence for all eternity, in His presence and supremely happy. Take time to know and understand God better Take time to be in his presence. And now let's look at verse 50. And they did not understand, this is Joseph and Mary, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Why? Why didn't they understand? Why didn't they know that Jesus had to be in his father's house? After all, Mary had had the benefit of the angel Gabriel's announcement to her in uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. Remember that announcement? The angel said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary had the benefit of that announcement. She also had the testimony of Elizabeth, again in Luke 1, where Elizabeth says to her, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She had that testimony. And then Mary and Joseph had the testimony of the shepherds in Luke 2. Remember when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds? And said to them, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And the angel gives them a sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And the shepherds go, and they find Joseph and Mary and the baby in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary and Joseph heard these words about their son. Then they had the blessing of Simeon when Jesus was presented to the Lord at the temple. And Simeon, it says, he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, 
he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother, Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. They had the testimony of Simeon, and then Anna, and then Jesus himself. Mary and Joseph had heard a great deal, and yet they did not understand. Is this a surprise? Not really. It's more a typical response to Jesus that we often see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These Gospels, somewhat in contrast to John, take a kind of earth-to-heaven viewpoint of Jesus. Right? They be, Matthew and Luke begin with infancy, birth. Mark begins with Jesus as a young man. They take an earth-to-heaven viewpoint of Jesus, and in these Gospels, we read along and watch as it slowly dawns on people that this Jesus is no ordinary man. Remember when he calms the storm at sea at the end of Mark 4, and the disciples react with fear, saying, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. They don't quite get it. Or recall John the Baptist's question to Jesus in Matthew 11, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John the Baptist wasn't sure. By contrast, John, in his gospel, lays it out for us right away. Right, John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. We're told that right away. But most of us come to faith in Jesus and to a deeper understanding of him slowly, the way pretty much everyone comes in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's the case for Mary and Joseph as well. It's the way it often works for those we're trying to reach with the good news. It takes time. It happens slowly. For Luke, the uncertainty about Jesus is actually resolved through a close study of his life and ministry. That's what Luke is telling us in his gospel as it opens. Right? He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Uncertainty about Jesus is resolved through a close study of his life and ministry. Well, what's our response to all of this? Beyond what I've said, it seems to me that the pondering that Mary does in chapter 2, verse 19, and at the end of verse 51, is a call to us to do the same. Mary pictures for us what the faithful should do when confronted with the events of Jesus' life. We consider these events, these truths, we ponder them, we mull them over, we meditate on them, we pray over them. After all, we all have to wrestle with Jesus' identity and decide exactly who he is. So friends, in 2023, I hope you'll take time to consider Jesus, take time to get to know him better, take time to be in his presence. Amen.